I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with uh, Russell Goodway, who is the Cabinet Member for Investment and Development in Cardiff Council, but has been one of the best-known local government councillors around in Wales for decades. Russell, although you're very much associated with Cardiff, you're not actually from Cardiff itself, are you? No. Originally. No, no. I was, uh, I was born at RAF St. Athen uh, because my dad was uh, in the RAF. Um, and then I grew up in, in the Vale of Glamorgan and uh, came to Cardiff when I started work in 1978. What were you doing then? I was a trainee with Pricewaterhouse in Cardiff. And then after that, I worked for myself for a while. And then I got involved in local politics by mistake. You went to Swansea University, didn't you? I did go to Swansea University, yeah. Studied economics? I did. So that gave you something of a grounding. But you say that you came into politics by mistake. How did that come about? Did you not come from a political family? I did come from a political family, very much so. I don't remember life at all without politics dominating discussion, particularly on a, on a weekend, on a Sunday, when my mother and her brothers used to sort of... Uh, come to my grandparents for, for tea after church on Sunday. And um, my granddad was joined the Labour Party in 1929, to be honest. Ramsay MacDonald period. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we had a Labour MP in, um, in the Barry constituency then. And he always sort of uh, led the, the discussion, very active in the trade union. And I, and, I, and I think the trade union was probably more dominant in my early years even than the party because my recollection is that the party only really came together in the village at election time. You know, there weren't regular branch meetings or anything like that, but my granddad, my dad, my mother, all very active in their trade unions, um, you know, shop stewards, whatever. Um, And, yeah, so political discussion was uh, very much to the fore. And I have a memory of when I was nine years old of listening to this discussion and uh, the conversation got around to Winston Churchill and uh, I just blurted out what I'd been taught at school that Winston Churchill was the finest prime minister this country had had and my recollection is of my grandmother almost swallowing his pipe (laughs) and telling me that when he was in parliament Churchill didn't know whether it was June or January (laughs) and you had no time at all uh, you know, for him or for what he stood for, and then of course you learn about uh, Tonopandi and all of that. So yeah, I've never known life without politics. My first general election campaign was in 1964, when David Marquand stood against Raymond Gower in that election, and took him very close. I, I have to say, I think I have, well I know that I have worked in every single election campaign, whether it be local, regional or national ever since. How did you come to become a councillor? Because I think you were one of the youngest councillors in Wales and in well, Britain. Well, I, I, I became a, a, a councillor in Roots, in, in the village where I grew up, shortly after I came out of university, basically because we, we wanted to improve the facilities for youngsters in, in the village. Um, so I was 21 then, um, and that was fine because it didn't take up a great deal of time. Um, but a few years later, it must have been about, yeah, it was 1984, a friend of mine who had been at university with me and had persuaded me there 
to stand for the Students' Union Executive, which I successfully did, and he was the president. He came to work in Cardiff, uh, lived in Canton, uh, and he was a school teacher. And he were, we were out one night, and he was saying that they were finding it difficult to get a candidate to stand in Canton, which in, in those days was Victoria Park. Well, the Canton at all is Victoria Park, which had just been carved out of the old land of Ward um, when they went to single-member units in South Glamorgan. And he said, you could do that. He said, you could stand there. I said, well, I haven't got time to do that, Steve. He said, oh, you can't win. He said, there's no possibility that you will win. And I remember we went, Sue and I went on a, a, a trip to... Um, the European Parliament, when Wynne Griffiths was MEP. And there was a group from Canton that we got to know through the land of summer parties and, and the like. And they were trying to persuade me to stand. Well, I don't know what Steve did. He must have taken me out one night and had one pint too many. But I ended up agreeing to stand on the basis that I could not win. And I remember having, after I was selected, I had a letter from the branch secretary telling me that because there was no possibility of winning, no resource was going to be put into this election campaign because uh, they were going to put it into the neighbouring ward, which I understood. And you were on your own, basically. And I remember wandering around on polling day thinking, this is a waste of time. I got home, um, dressed, changed to go to the count. The count was in Lansdowne School, I remember. Uh, and there were four counts going on that night, Canton and Lansdowne Ward, Riverside South, Riverside North. So in that room was me, Michael Trickey, Mark Drakeford, Jane Hutt. And when the votes were counted, it looked as if I was the only one who was going to lose. And I thought, this is going to be embarrassing now. Anyway, I called to the front, and I'm told that I've lost by 53 votes. And I was delighted. I thought, if we'd have put some effort in here, things could have been different. I didn't need to feel guilty or whatever. People saying, oh, I, I could slash my wrists if only we you know, sort of worked a bit harder. Nobody told me that there was a recount. Nobody said a word. I'd congratulated Trevor Tyrrell on his selection. When they went to declare, I was fully expecting him to be declared the winner. He was walking down the middle of the hall in order to get his credentials. And as they got to the end, I'd won by 28. And apparently they did a, did a bundle check, and some of my votes were in the wrong bundle. And the rest is, the, as they say, is history. So that was a bit of a shock then, Peter. An absolute shock. I, you know, I, 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 I was in business with, with a friend that we had a base in Western Supermare and one in Barry. I promised him that there was no prospect that I was going to win this seat. I had to ring him and apologise and, you know, didn't know what to do. I, I remember that we, we were written to as candidates to ask what committees we would like to be on in the event that we were successful. And I remember tearing it up thinking, well, I won't be needing that. And so I had no choice of what committee I went on when I arrived because I hadn't given an option, so I was just put on education, the same as everybody else, and one or two other things, and, and that was it. So if you hadn't won that election, do you think you'd have stood again? No. No, probably not. So that's a bit of happenstance, really. Yeah. All that followed would All not have followed. happened. Yeah, absolutely. That's astonishing. It is. So... You got on the council, South Glam, yeah. yeah, South Glamorgan County Council, and you obviously threw yourself into it because, uh, in due course, you became the leader of South Glamorgan County Council. How, yeah. long, how long was that? I was elected in 1985, so I was re-elected then in 1989, and I remember that the um, my grandmother's funeral was the day after the election, so I I wasn't in County Hall to help shape the the new arrangements, and this was these were the days before mobile phones, of course. 
And Rita Austin had lost, she'd been the chair of finance in South Glam. She'd lost her seat in Cardiff Central um, on the back of the Awardian School um, debate. Um, and in my absence on that Friday, it was decided that I was going to be the new chair of finance. I remember taking a call at my mother's house from Peter Perkins, who told me that they had decided that I was going to be the chair of finance in the new administration. And then by 19, well, 1990, end of 91, 92, Jack Brooks told me that he was going to stand down as leader. Um, and I tried to persuade him not to, because I didn't think it was the right time, but he clearly had in his mind uh, that he wanted to go. Uh, and I remember him telling me that you, you, you shouldn't run for it, he said, at this stage. He said, wait a bit. Um, and I think it was because he had someone else in mind. Anyway, I, that, I was happy with that. I, I, I w wasn't considering anything. And, you know, the, the strange thing is, it was Bernard Rees, who was the, um, the leader of the opposition at the time. He called me one Sunday night and he said, Russell, you must put your name forward. And I said, why do you, why do you say that, Bernard? He said, because you've got to show you're interested. If you don't mark your card that you're interested in the leadership now, he said, your, your moment will go. So I, I spoke to one or two of my closer colleagues on the council and they shared the view. So we thought, well, we'll take this, this out for a ride. And I was amazed. Um, and Jack changed his view during the course of the campaign. Um, I remember he, he came on board and said it was the right thing to do. And I can remember the night. It was May the 11th, 1992, at 7 o'clock. Um, and Jack had this art of being able to count the votes before they were cast, simply by body language and simply by viewing where people sat in the room. And I remember one or two colleagues came through the door and didn't sit in their traditional seat. They'd moved around. And he was saying, he'll vote for you. I said, how would you know that, Jack? He said, well, look who he's sitting with. Look who he's gone to sit with. And I remember he said to me, you will win this on the first ballot. I, didn't, I, I thought I could win, but it certainly wouldn't be on the first ballot. And I remember that um, Carol Colbert, who was chair of the party, uh, along with... Um, I can't remember who the secretary, I think it must have been Tony Richards. They counted the votes on the windowsill in committee room four in County Hall. She walked around, gave a piece of paper to Jack, and he just said, you've got a new leader, Russell. That's how it happened. And of course, that was the final term before local government reorganisation, it was. wasn't it? It was. Because I remember, Russell, when I arrived as a reporter to work originally for Wales on Sunday when we had separate staffs, I remember without being directly involved in covering these events. I remember hearing about what happened when local government reorganisation took place and there was a new Cardiff City Council being established. And I was told about how there was, as it were, some kind of battle between you and Sue Essex, who had been the leader of Cardiff City Council, for the leadership of the new authority. And it quickly became apparent to me that there was quite a bit of, shall we say enmity or, or bad blood around at the time because you know there were a couple of factions and the factions didn't get on with each other D does that conform to your recollection yeah very much so I mean that I mean bear in mind that the, the history of Cardiff City Council had been where one where the Labour Party was in opposition more than it was in power 
whereas the opposite was the case in, in South Glamorgan. I put that down to the timing of elections as much as anything, that the, the, the district council elections, which Cardiff City was a part of, were coincided with um, the general election. So you know, when Thatcher was standing and winning big majorities, poor old district council candidates were campaigning among, behind that sort of thing. Well, we were mid-term, the Thatcher government. Those opportunities when people can send a message to Maggie as it were, and you know, those were the, the campaign. So we were, South Morgan was only ever held by the opposition once in its lifetime. Whereas I think it was 1991 before Labour actually took a majority in the city council. So not too far before reorganisation. There were, always was a struggle, you know, between, even between people in the same party. I remember um, Peter Perkins telling me that sitting councillors had to choose whether they were going to be on the city council or the, the county council, because in our party, I think after the first term of the old councils in 19, created in 74, party brought in a rule you could only sit on one or the other, whereas the Tories were on both. And uh, they had to choose, and he was told in no uncertain terms by John Smith that he was going to be the candidate for the county council because John Smith wanted to be on the city. So there was always this bit of a tussle. And I recall, you know, hearing stories of who was first in the lineup at a royal visit. Was it the Lord Mayor or the Chairman of the County Council? And, and that just built up this enmity, if you like, this sort of friction between the two. I remember in October of 1994, telling my people and particularly officials as well, you know, that there was little prospect that I could become the leader of the new authority because half my group were in the Vale of Glamorgan. And so a lot of my support was you know, not going to be part of the, the decision-making process. So I'd already started to plan as to what I was going to do after May of 1995. Um, but events, dear boy, events um, happen, don't they? So this factionalism mm. which existed, was it purely based on personality or was there any ideological element to it? I think in the Brooks day it was more ideological. I, it may have become more personal as time went by. But the, the big issue was over member-led authorities. And there's no question that South Morgan was a member-led authority. I mean, Jack had established that authority in 74 as its first leader. Um, he brought that approach very much to the fore and you know taught us all that we we had to be the decision takers and if you're not prepared to de defend a decision don't take it you know because you can't blame it on anybody else if we want to be in control of the agenda then we have to take responsibility for the decisions around that agenda and he used to despair at the situation across at city hall where very much the officers controlled the authority you know, and, and his good friends, people like Ricky Ormond and, and others who were, you know, chairs of committees, were, were sidelined, you know, even, even in photographs uh, on, on days of announcements. You know, the official would be in the photograph and, you know, the member wouldn't. And Jack used to, well, be furious about it. And, um, and therefore it was the culture, I think, of local government that probably divided the two. Um, and I know Jack had been a city councillor um, prior to the, the county council elections. And you know, he used to tell stories then of how 
the town clerk, as I think they were called in those days, you know, absolutely dominated the council, and it was something that he could not live with. So the battle, actually, for control was won by you, Russell. You no, became uh, leader. lost, I think. You by, lost? By the other side. No, I won. Yes, but I, right. But I didn't yeah. win it. Um, the, the issue was that the other side lost it. How did they manage to do that? Um, well, in the, in the last year of the administration, because um, the, there was a, div- a huge division within the, the, the city council, as there was in the county council, you know, between right and left and, and whatever. Um, and in the final year of the administration, um, it was decided that Sue Essex was going to take the leadership off John Phillips, um, which he did. And uh, I think by one vote, if I remember rightly, it was that close. That, as I say, is events, really, because once that had happened, John Phillips came to see me and said that he had 11 votes, um, you know, that he could commit. So, you know, he was prepared to sort of do a deal. Um, And that is why I became the leader of uh, the new authority in 1995. Nothing that I did. Um, It was just pure happens chance again. And I remember that at that time, and this was a bit of a theme uh, where there were recurring stories over a number of years, there were people who were having a go at you, Russell, because you didn't actually live in Cardiff. Mm. Why didn't you live in Cardiff? Well, I live in the same house now as I did on the day that I was elected. And um, there have been various reasons you know, at, at times when it just wasn't sort of possible really to move or, 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 or life would have been more complicated. I mean when I was first elected I didn't have children um, and then David came along and I was lucky because my parents-in-law lived on the other side of the road. My parents lived just down the road so childcare wasn't an issue and when you're working in the day job and active in politics you need a lot of childcare at various times of the day particularly evenings so it was convenient to stay where we were. And of course, in the early days, it made no difference because I was living in South Glamorgan, wasn't I? So it was only after reorganisation that this became an issue. And then as time goes by, um, you know, 1991, 1990, 91, Susan's father became ill and then passed away. The fact that we were on the other side of the road sort of helped enormously in Susan looking, you know, caring for her dad, supporting her mum. And then as... Time years went by, Susan's mother started to develop dementia. And again, being on the other side of the road made that a a lot easier. Uh, And so I guess inertia, you know, what was going on in in, in life behind just meant that it was better for us to stay where we were. And that's the only reason, really. Because remember, there was a bit of a farcical story at one stage because... You were renting a house from a bin man. I bought it. I bought it. I bought the house, yeah, in Abathor Road. And only because, even though, you know, I'd been a a councillor then in Cardiff for, what, the best part of 20 years, and this was just prior to the 2004 election, uh, there were forces in the party that were trying to rule me out because I didn't live in Cardiff. So, uh, or or I didn't have the... um, the qualifications to stand in Cardiff, which everybody knew I did, but they were making this issue. So, well, the easiest thing was Roy was moving out, I'll buy a house then, Roy. I've now got the qualification to to live in Cardiff. So that's why. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I, I remember being chased down the street by 
the BBC over that one. And so, you're leader of the council. Mm-hmm. What was your vision for Cardiff? I wanted Cardiff to be a truly European capital city, right? to have all the components that meant that Cardiff would be acknowledged as on that European stage, but also an important British city. That was what I wanted to create. And in, in order that we could tr- attract good jobs for people, um, because if you get quality jobs, that helps drive up the education institutions. It, it also meant that people didn't have to leave Cardiff in order to get a good job. And I passionately believe in, in work. I, mean, I, I remember growing up that I was one of few people on our estate whose father was never on the door. Um, and then I don't think it's any coincidence that my sister and I were the only two people on that estate to go to university. It was because my parents had the wherewithal to support us to go where other families didn't. And so I was absolutely passionate about keeping people in work, having the responsibility um, to earn a living, look after their family, give them the opportunity. But I wanted them not to be any job, I wanted it to be a good job. Now I didn't know what that meant in terms of you know, what we needed to make that happen. So I remember turning to Cardiff University and asking whether they could help me develop a, a blueprint, if you like, of what that meant. Um, and they readily, um, they readily assisted. A guy by the name of Phil Cook in the regional planning department oversaw the, the exercise. But we brought in business interests, trade union interests, and various stakeholders, including the politicians, to identify what the components of a European capital city would be. And at the time, I remember one of the um, things was to say, well, you need a good university. Not any university, you need a good university. And, of course, the backdrop to that was that, you know, not many years prior, Cardiff University had gone bust. And, you know, there was a forced merger with Uist uh, and, mm-hmm. and the like. So, you know, that was important. It was, that, that was damaging Cardiff's reputation. Uh, another one was that you needed a stage on which you could have grand opera. Uh, and Cardiff didn't have that. And yet, and yet we had one of the best opera companies in the world, you know, in, in, in Wales. It needed a venue where you could stage the biggest sporting events that take place anywhere in the world. And there were various other components in that 2020 document. Um, and, you know, they made it clear to me that Cardiff was never going to be a London or a Rome or, or a Madrid. You know, you could never compete like that. But you could certainly be the best of some of the regional European capitals. Uh, and that's where we should as- aspire to be. And so we converted that document into a policy programme for uh, for the authority, and we started to take it forward. And I was amazed how many people came knocking the door to say, well, we can help you deliver that component, or we can help you do that little bit. Um, and it made it easy in terms of decision-making, because if people came through the door and said, we want to do something else, well, that's fine, that's up to you. But what you realise is you're not going to get a huge amount of support from the council, because it doesn't fit in with what we're trying to create. And once people started to understand that, they shaped their proposals, and every time they came through the door, they were demonstrating what part of our agenda they were helping us to deliver. And that's why we were able to do so much of what we did using private sector investment and not having to use a great deal of public money. Now, all this, of course, was going on at a time 
when the National Assembly was being set up. Mm. You're not an enormous fan of uh, devolution, are you, Russell? Um, I'm a fan of devolution. I'm not a fan of nationalism. You're not a fan, a great fan of the National Assembly. I, I voted for it twice, um, but I'll be honest, I voted in both referenda um, out of loyalty to my party, not out of conviction that I, I believed we were doing the right thing. Uh, I think in 1979 I was persuaded by the arguments being put forward by Michael Foote that actually by creating a National Assembly you'd probably do more to stem the tide of nationalism than if you uh, allowed it to develop you know, uncontrolled. Um, I think that's proved to be very wrong. I think that devolution, political devolution on national boundaries has actually fueled the, the drive towards nationalism. But I genuinely believe in devolution, certainly to, to local government. And I think that the removal of the counties in 1995 actually meant that we weren't able to argue for more powers because so many of the authorities didn't have the, the wherewithal, the ability, the scale in order to cope with more powers. And I think we've seen that, haven't we, as powers of those 22 authorities have been taken away and put into sorts of consortia and whatever because some local authorities weren't, being, weren't able to deliver an education service and, and the like. So um, I, I think the problem with the devolution settlement we've got is that it is based on a political solution, uh, not an economic one. You know, on reflection, if you, if you had designed a devolution settlement on the basis of how the economy would benefit the people that live within areas, you would not have had one for the whole of Wales. You would have put North Wales into the northern powerhouse, if you like, and you would have linked South Wales with that M4 corridor to London. And I still think that there's an opportunity to do that. Um, and, and who knows, you know, um, Brexit may be just that opportunity to argue for um, resources to be given to the local government level so that they can drive a, a different economic agenda. Because, you know, whatever we, we, we think, we have to reflect on the last 20 years, the economic development agenda of the National Assembly has not been that successful, has it? So perhaps we should try something different. Do you think there is a prospect of that happening now with a Conservative government which has just been elected with a majority of 80 seats? Do you think that they are going to try and grab powers back? Because that's what the I'm, nationalists I'm, believe. Yeah, I'm not sure. You see, it depends how you look at it, isn't it? I wouldn't see that as grabbing powers back. And I don't have such a difficulty with it because my party believes passionately in the union of the United Kingdom. So why would we be against something that may cement that union through creating economic powerhouses that generates um, economic benefits to parts of Wales that may be shared with neighbouring parts of England. And I think if any, anything that suggests that this could happen is because of what happened last Thursday in North Wales. How is the Conservative government going to ensure that those seats in North Wales benefit economically from their agenda. And the only way that they can do that with any sense of control is to create a unit that takes in North Wales and part of the north of England and fund it so that you know, the infrastructure is put in place the, and, and that the economic links with Manchester and Liverpool you know, are shared 
by those seats on the border of the north of England. So I think that there is a good prospect that could happen. And if that's the case, then I would want Cardiff to be part of anything that is going to be done on the M4 corridor or to, to Bristol. Because I've always said that if Cardiff is not the economic dynamo for South Wales and Wales, then it'll be Bristol. It's not going to be Newport and it's not going to be Swansea. It's either Cardiff or Bristol. And either we're part of it and we have some influence over it or it'll happen around us. Not many people in your party would agree with you on that at the moment, would they, in Wales? Not many people in my party in Wales. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. So I've got a job to do, haven't I? You have. You're <laughs> going to persuade them. And it's going to get a lot of reaction, isn't it? Because people in the Labour Party, I mean, one of the arguments has been, I remember talking years ago to the late Phil Williams, who was talking about how perhaps Plaid Cymru's vision of a free Wales would not be delivered by Plaid Cymru, but by Welsh Labour. Indeed. And, and I think that what we've seen um, since 1999, is Welsh Labour trying to outnap the Nats. Um, and I don't think you can do that, particularly when we repeat as often as we can that we believe in the, in the United Kingdom. Um, and if you believe in the United Kingdom, you need to do something that strengthens that union, not weakens it. Uh, and you've seen in Scotland um, how it has served to weaken the union. And, and, I, and I don't think that that is a positive development at all. What would your view be, Russell, if over the next few years there was a referendum again in Scotland which resulted in Scottish independence, uh, which we can't rule out, No. and also that there was a referendum in Northern Ireland which resulted in the reunification of Ireland, and you've then got a situation where you have England as the more dominant even than now country in a rump southern Britain. What would that do for Wales? Do you know what really bothers me, and has bothered me for a while, is that someday England's going to want a referendum on independence. And they will choose. And some, some days, and I, and, I, and I know this is a, an absolute anathema, certainly to the people in Scotland, but... Should the future of the United Kingdom be decided by the people of the United Kingdom or should it be decided by the people of Scotland? You know, it's, it's a you know, discuss. <laughs> I can see a PhD thesis coming on. Um, but we've got to resolve this issue. And when you've got the, you know, the bulk of, of, of the political parties in this country being unionist parties, but they've got to come together and argue for it and convince people that they are better off Part of the problem has been that under successive governments, you know, I even have to admit under Labour governments, people in the South Wales Valleys have not become better off. You know, even prior to devolution, um, you know, there's been that slow, I don't know, abandonment, if you like. I mean, you, you feel sometimes that the policy of the Labour Party for the last 30 years has been this slow abandonment of the valleys, slow a few million pounds every now and again to make life a little bit better whilst you manage the exit of young people in, into different places. And you know, if, if, if that's the policy, be honest about it. If it's not the policy, well, change what you're doing because what you're doing at the minute isn't creating what you want to create. So in the aftermath of the election now, uh, all the focus is on 
Jeremy Corbyn saying that Jeremy Corbyn messed up and was an inappropriate leader who could never win an election. But what you're saying is that the problem goes back a lot further than that within the Labour Party. I, I think that the Labour Party's attachment or, or um, the, the Labour Party's relationship with its heartlands has been has not as been as strong for a lot longer than the last 10 years. And that applies in this city as much as it applies outside of the city as well. There are communities on the outskirts of this city that have become detached from politics, that have decided that they don't vote in elections. You know, there was no bigger Remainer than me on the basis that you know, I, I'm very conscious that you know, I'm one of the first generations that have lived all my life without conflict in Europe. Um, and that's worth, you know, that's worth paying money for, as far as I'm concerned. So if that's what we pay into the EU for, then that's worth it. But I was left in no, under no illusions when the Brexit referendum happened that people in Ely, for instance, that hadn't voted ever or hadn't voted for the best part of 30 years, suddenly turned out to cast their vote and they wanted to leave. And it's because they felt that whatever arguments were being put forward about the money that came from the EU and was invested in play, it had made no difference to them. Their life hadn't changed. So here was a chance to change something for the better. The stories that you heard was, you know, there were families with children waiting for council housing waiting for Mrs Thomas at number 10 to die, you know, so that that house became vacant. And when it did, they didn't get it. Their kids didn't get it. Somebody from outside the community came in and, and, and took that house. And, you know, that's not what it was used to be, and that's not how it should be. And the reason for that is it's not the fault of the person that came in whose need may have been higher. It was the fact that we hadn't built council houses for... I don't know how long. We didn't build council houses during the Blair years, did we? All those years. We didn't replenish the council housing stock to make these homes available, make feel pe people feel that they were part of a community that mattered to somebody. As far as they were concerned, they didn't matter to anybody. There's another element, Russell. We're sitting now right in the centre of uh, Cardiff. And over the last few years, there's been an immense amount of redevelopment uh, of the city centre in the area around Cardiff Central Railway Station. And yet, one could perhaps make the argument that for all the new buildings that have been created and for all the extra jobs that are created within those buildings, essentially you're talking about displacement from elsewhere within the city because we've got a big HMRC building those people were previously working in, or they're currently working before they move in, in uh, Phoenicia. You've got the BBC, which uh, is going to shut down in uh, Llandaff and come down to the centre of Cardiff. Have all these shiny buildings actually done much for those left-behind people that you're talking about? Certainly they have. The fact is that they create jobs um, in the construction period, and, and, and afterwards, they create jobs that people living in those communities can do. I mean, it was the only reason why I supported the creation of the Cardiff Bay Barrage. You know, again, much opposition from my own colleagues at the time. But as far as I was concerned, you know, we were living in Ely then uh, with third-generation unemployment, second-third-generation unemployment, people that didn't have 
you know, huge skills. But here was a massive project, a construction project, that people in those areas could do, and they could learn skills as part of it. People don't talk about it enough. It's to the credit of what was being happened at the time, that there was a whole apprenticeship uh, capability created in Dumball's Road, where people were taken and taught these construction skills. You know, so it then became you know, necessary for us to keep that going, because if people had learned these skills, you need to create the jobs and keep the jobs that they can use those skills going forward. And you know, we don't have the level of unemployment in Ely and Trowbridge uh, as we did, not even in Butte Town now. I have to say, where you know, people are working on local projects. And as far as I'm concerned, where should the HMRC be? It should be in the city centre. Why is it in Anishan? Because that's somewhere where we can build houses for people to live in. And you know, I, I know that I was quoted in the paper the other day saying, you know, I'd like to see a council estate uh, built in Cardiff North. The reason is I want people to have ambition and aspire to go and live in Cardiff North. I want people who... You know, who haven't got many opportunities to have access to the best schools. Why should people be able to buy their access to the best schools in the city simply because they can afford to buy a house in Cardiff North? And I believe that schools are better where you have a social mix than where you have a school that serves a sink estate. You know, you've seen examples in England where that has not been good for those kids. If you want children to be ambitious, you've got to be ambitious for them. And you've got to create the opportunities for them and convince them that they are worthy of those jobs. And that's what I wanted for, for the city as well, because when I became leader of South Glamorgan, I was conscious that the confidence in this city was at an all-time low. People didn't think that Cardiff was worthy of having the best rugby stadium in the world or a university uh, that was amongst the top in the world. But we were worthy. We were worth it. And it was worth going after and creating. And we need to do more of that. As you know, I've got a particular bugbear about the bus station in the centre yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, it used to be the case, mm. when we had the old bus station, that we had this uh, effective interchange between the train station and the bus station, which many cities in Britain have aspired to for a long time and haven't managed to achieve. Coming from the outside, one could say that the fact that the bus station in the centre of Cardiff, right by the train station has been demolished and replaced by a big square uh, with some uh, buildings, new buildings nearby, is a retrograde step in the sense of connectivity, in the context of connectivity. And we're still going to have to wait some years before we get a replacement bus station, which isn't going to be nearly as big as the old one. Uh, And I know I'm not alone in thinking this because I travel on the buses, I speak to people, and a lot of people are moaning about this. And There's been a lot of disruption in the city centre of Cardiff, um, Russell, uh, for a number of years now. What do you say to that kind of criticism? Wait until it's finished. Um, And I know you've waited too long, but when it's complete, people will see the wisdom behind what we've tried to create. Um, I have to say uh, that my personal view um, always has been that we should have built the bus station on the south of the station, not on the north. One, because you had a bigger footprint but also connectivity with all parts of the city. There are some parts on, you know, to the east of the city that even after the bus station is open, their buses probably are not going to come into that bus station. That could have happened if we created on the south, but it was a political decision um, by my party that it had to be on the north of the, of, the, of the railway station. I certainly would not want a solution that just put a roof over what was there before. 
It's got to be better than that. What we're creating is something that looks like, you know, an airport departure lounge where, you know, the thing will come up. You, you don't go to the same bay every time to get the, the bus. The bus will come in, stop. The announcement will be you get on and it moves back out. You know, drivers are not going to leave the bus there for half an hour like they did in the old situation and go off to Asti's for a cup of tea. That's not what we're creating. Uh, and I think it will serve the, the city well. But because it's had to pay for itself, I mean, you know, we've not put any public money into, into this. Land values on the north of the railway station are more expensive than on the south. So, you know, you've been curtailed in, in what you can deliver. But you, you, you are right. We, you know, I can tell you now, the leader of the council, myself and my colleagues, share your frustration as how long this has taken to pull together but we are convinced that it will be the right thing for the city once it's complete. Final question, Russell. How does the Labour Party recover? Oh. There, are, there are many brains putting their, um, you know, their, their thoughts to how we do that. It, we will only recover if we recapture the centre ground. We have to be a party of ambition and aspiration. I mean, Kinnock taught us that back in the 80s when he used to talk about... Um, uh, the Sierra Man, that, you know, in, 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 when he used to say that in conversations he was having with Ron Todd at the time, that's how far back it goes. You know, how do you tell the guy that now owns his own house, that has got the car on the drive, that has two foreign holidays a year, how do you tell that guy that we want to deliver you from your misery? And, you know, it's part of that process where we lost connectivity with our core support. They no longer associated or identified with us. And we've spent, you know, the Blair years trying to, to recover, and I think we did to a, a huge extent, but then we, we lost it again. And dare I say, I don't blame Corbyn, frankly, for what happened this week. I blame those that voted for Corbyn. Uh, I blame those... You mean the MPs? The MPs. Uh, I, well... Oh, and, and, the, and the members. I, I blame those who facilitated his name appearing on a ballot paper when they had absolutely no intention of supporting him. You were Andrew Davis? Margaret Beckett, too, who described herself as a moron. I mean, why would you, why would any reasonable person nominate somebody that you, one, would never vote for yourself and, and thought that could never do the job? What sort of politics is it that allows that to happen? You know, Ed Miliband, who allowed people to join the party for three pounds and have a vote, a say in who our leader should be, alongside people, dare I say, like me, that have been my parents that have been in the party for a generation, that our vote counted for no more than those. So I don't blame Jeremy Corbyn. People facilitated his rise. I blame people who gave up on on working-class people having aspiration. And, you know, that manifested itself in this election campaign to an extent. I, I, I consider myself to be, you know, very lucky, very fortunate that I've had the opportunities in life that I have and I can earn the sort of money that I earn. I believe that I should pay more into the taxation pot as a result of that to give other people the opportunities that I had. I don't believe in pulling the ladder up behind me. I want other people to have the same opportunities because... If they hadn't thought that in my day, I wouldn't have had the opportunity, would I? But, you know, the way it was presented was that anybody that had been successful were being punished, that you were going to be paying more taxes because you'd somehow or other, you know, were rich. 
Well, we're not rich. We're, we're better off than many, many people. But talk to us in the terms of, look, guys, if you are just prepared to pay another 5p, it can make this sort of difference to these people's lives. You can be part of this movement that creating opportunity for a whole raft and, and change in the country as a result of that. It's the way you tell the story, Martin. It's the way you convince people and you don't rubbish. You know, you don't go around telling people that voted to leave the EU that somewhere or other they were stupid and didn't understand. That may be your view. But what you have to convince them that actually, if we have another say, it could be different. You know, and if we, if we stay in the EU, we will argue within Europe and within the country that actually we got the message. You people felt left behind. You people were left behind. And the policies we now bring forward are going to make sure that we repair the damage that's occurred. Russell Goodway, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.